welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, Mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. There's just a lot of misconception and and a lack of education around running a business as an alternative healthcare provider and even more specifically working with insurance companies, charting for them, coding for them, you know, all of these things. And so I get a lot of clients that come to me 
and we're having to educate them about NPI numbers and EIN numbers and how to communicate effectively with their patients about their insurance and how to read their insurance contracts and just the whole thing. Hey, AccuSprouts, welcome back to the show. I am really relieved to have this next guest. Once again, you guys know I'm always looking for people who want to help new practitioners and who I find to be pretty supportive of new practitioners. And I ran into a couple of brick walls when I was trying to find billing companies that were excited to work with new practitioners. So I'm going to discuss that a little bit with my guest. But today I am bringing on Courtney Netto with PD Expert Medical Billing. She's located in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I was looking for billers to bring on and talk about billing for new practitioners. And there's no runway for this. And I I talked to people and they were so excited. They want to be on the podcast, right? But really, truthfully, nobody wants to work with new practitioners. And I sat with that for a while. And then I really clicked in my business mind. And I was like, oh, that's because for one, we don't really have a lot of patience. Two, we tend to make a lot of mistakes, which then become your problem, which then cost you money in the long run, too, especially if the biller is billing on a percentage basis. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we can address this question. Sure. So I own PD Expert Medical Billing, which, you know, is uh, a medical billing company. (laughs) And uh, I've owned it since uh, 2016. But before that, I was a massage therapist actually for 14 years. And that's kind of what led me into the career because my body was getting really tired of doing massage. I was a deep tissue therapist and I wanted another way to stay, I would say adjacent to the healthcare field, but in the healthcare field. And my brain really wanted something else to do. Massage is wonderful, but it wasn't challenging to my brain. So I learned in a multidisciplinary chiropractic clinic how to do medical billing from somebody else who was doing the billing for that clinic. And I really liked it, surprising as that may be. It's an ever-changing field. It's a self-regulating field. And so they kind of make the rules up, but it's a giant puzzle. And I love puzzles and I love being able to utilize critical thinking every day. And so I have three employees and we take on all alternative healthcare practitioners as clients. And we work with uh, exclusively with JNAP, which is a software company. And I just really enjoy not only doing medical billing, but all of the other things that tend to come with that aren't always discussed, you know, office support services, education, huge on education. I find that a lot of providers are not given that education in school of how to run their business, operate their business, work with insurance companies, all that jazz. So I really enjoy being an expert in that field and helping providers have a sustainable business in the U.S., Yeah. And so again, you guys, the name of her company is PD Expert Medical Billing, which is for those of you not in the know, PDX is the airport code for Portland and Portland identifies with its airport code very strongly. We do. And it makes a good business name. (laughs) It is. It's kind of funny because it's all in the million places that I've lived. I'm like, Portland really, really grabbed hold of that PDX situation. Yeah, yeah, we do. We like the the little airport code. Yeah. So that is how you can find Courtney and everything that we talk about will be linked in the show notes, including her website link. So tell me a little bit about why maybe other 
billing companies are not excited about working with new practitioners? Yeah, you know, I can't really speak for other companies, but I will say that there's a lot of different elements to taking on a new practitioner of any specialty. One is teaching them how you are going to work with them. You know, how is your workflow going to go? How do you teach that provider how to be more efficient in their billing? There's just a lot of education that goes into bringing on new clients. So I could see that being kind of a hindrance. To be honest, it's a little baffling to me. You know, I I like business. I like bringing on new clients. So it's a little odd to find that there are companies out there, unless they're at capacity. You know, if they're at capacity and they don't have room for new clients, that's one issue. But for companies that are like, no, I don't really want to work with new providers, you know, perhaps in a specific specialty, perhaps across the board. That's a little baffling to me. So, you know, you spoke earlier about a lot of billers do work on a percentage basis. And that's true. That is a pretty common business model for medical billers. We don't take that model because there are so many states that there are regulations that prohibit any kind of percentage billing when it comes to insurance. So it's easier for us since we have clients all over to just have an hourly rate or a flat rate basis and kind of avoid that whole issue. But when it comes to medical billers saying, you know, no, we don't want to take on any new practitioners. I would assume that one of two things we'll say is happening. One, they don't feel that the income from that client is going to be big enough to be able to, you know, sustain their business practice. Or two, they are in a place where they don't want to teach a new client how to work with them. I think it's a little odd, but, you know, we're all people and we all have our reasons for doing things. Medical billing is a good business it's a busy business. I guess I should say that more so. It seems to me that every medical biller that I know of is just full and busy. Yeah, job security for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk just briefly for the new practitioners about what it takes to bill and maybe what you provide and then what billing companies provide and don't. But I understand that we need to get credentialed first. And Mm -hmm. in my own exploration of this, because I've not done this either until recently. You have to go on CDQH Pro. CAQH. <laughs> like ProView. There's one specific website. Uh well, it depends on where you are. Here on the West Coast, I would say that a lot of insurance companies work with CAQH. ProView is the portion of the software platform that providers would register and have an account. It's basically a platform where you would keep all of the information that insurance companies regularly ask for. So you would have their version of the state application. Each state has a different provider credentialing application. So it has all of the points that are in all of the state applications. Then it's just a place to keep your malpractice insurance, a copy of your license, any CEUs that you may have, your work history, the attestation page, you know, we all know the little page that you have to check no on everything. Otherwise, you write a whole thing as to why you're checking yes on the attestation page, things like that. So CAQH is a nice platform because it helps you to gather everything that you need. And it has alerts if you're missing something or if something is out of date. So I recommend even if you are looking at getting credentialed with insurance companies and perhaps only one or two of the companies actually work with CAQH, I would say that it's still worth using the site because it will help you organize everything that you need. And that can often be an issue. You know, when I have a provider say, what do I need for this? It's a good director. You know, you get in, the site tells you you need more documents or you need this or that. And then it tells you when everything is complete and it gives you the ability to share the access with insurance companies. 
So that's definitely one piece to the puzzle. Here in Oregon and in Washington, there are companies that don't work with CAQH. They will either work with One Healthport, the credentialing entity arm of One Healthport, or they don't work with a platform. They just take the state application, a W-9 or the 147C, which is the official IRS form that they give you when you establish an EIN number. Honestly, we could get in the weeds all the things that you need in the credentialing period. It is a lot. It's a lot to keep track of, and it's a lot to gather and keep. I would say that if I was going to give new providers a tip, keep everything. Just electronically file it into a folder that has to do with you and your business as a provider and keep everything from graduation date on because you are going to need it if you're going to do business with insurance companies for sure. And that's ProView. So that's the internet website. And I'm saying this because, I swear it, I didn't know where to go to to credential, right? So I'm Googling and I'm doing the things and I get on this website and it is asking me for my social security number. And yeah. I am like, I don't even know if this is the right site. Why would I give that information? This is 100% why I do this. I'm not the only one who doesn't know what I'm doing. I'm not the only new practitioner on the planet. And there is nobody. Who was I going to call in that moment and be like... Is this the site I should plug my social security number into or not? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot more sensitive information. Oh, my gosh. There's so much in that thing. And so I just want to tell the practitioners it's ProView. It's CAQH ProView. Yeah. So CAQH is the platform. ProView is the arm within the platform. Yes. And it's just a place to house all of your information. That's the basics. If that's all you get there, that's enough. Kind of like Courtney was saying, there's a lot of things that you're going to have to go get and put in there. So it'll be your guide. Let it be your guide. It can be very complicated. Even though I did all of this in the ProView, when I went to even just Blue Cross or Regents Blue Shield, they were not using this website. They want me to do all of this work separately again and sign another million bajillion forms. So I also know that some billing companies will do this for you proactively. I mean, obviously, you have to collect your information and give it to the biller. Is this something that your company does or are you having your practitioners go do it and then come back to you? Yeah, we don't offer credentialing and contracting services currently. There's so much involved with that. And you don't just put it out in the ethers and then, you know, cross your fingers. You have to follow up. You have to call them. You have to make sure everything was received. And if there's any other documentation that you need to fill out, because a lot of these insurance companies will have specific documentation they want filled out for their company. So you kind of have this packet of information and your NPI number and your EIN and all the things that you give out. And then certain insurance companies will come back and say, great, here's another stack of documents to sign and go through and fill out. And so it's just a lot to track. So it's not a service we currently offer. There are credentialing businesses out there that do this work. I would just encourage people to really vet the company before they get into business with them. I think it's a good idea to just ask them, how often are you checking back in on this? What kind of time frame are we looking at? What is the communication like in the period of waiting? Because there is a lot of waiting when it comes to contracting and credentialing. You've submitted everything that you can submit. You've asked the rep, do you have everything you need? And they say, yep, you're good. We're going to put this in process. And then it's crickets. And so it would be good when you're looking for a company. And there are a few out there on the West Coast. I know I'm sure there are on the East and and Midwest. I just don't know of them. So I don't want to put that out there. But the ones that I do know of, it'd just be good to get a sense of expectation because this process can be quite long. There are companies that take up to sometimes 120 days to get credentialing contracting to go through. 
and some companies that will wait 60 to 90 days to let you know that you have extra documentation that you need to fill out and sign. So it's nice to have a company that's helping you that has an expertise. I would just want to make sure that they are going to do work past the actual submission of the application. What is it that you need to update each year with every company? It depends on the company. Blue Cross is a good example. They have Availity. They use Availity for attestation. So as long as you're getting into your Availity account every 90 days, and honestly, it can be a quick, quick click of the button. You know, it's like, okay, yep, everything is the same. Nothing has changed. I'm good to go. And then usually it's every year to three years is a recredentialing period. And that's when they actually want you to do more paperwork. It's not anywhere near the original contracting load, but it certainly is like, hey, we want you to, yes, reattest to the attestation page that nothing has happened. You haven't been brought on charges or, you know, whatever. And then you are usually required at that time to provide CEUs, whereas initial contracting credentialing, you're not necessarily required to provide CEUs. That's continuing education, just in case somebody out there is not sure of what I'm talking about. Usually upon original contracting and credentialing, you're just providing the educational institution and the schooling that you went through to get the license that you have. So yeah, usually every one to three years is the official recredentialing, but most companies do want you to kind of attest on a regular basis. Ash wants you to attest on a regular basis. Blue Cross does. And I think the others tend to just check back in. If they don't have an internet platform that they're having you sign into and attest to your information, typically it's a longer period of time that they would wait to have you recredential. Where can a new practitioner learn about billing? So this is something that you're very passionate about, and we're both on very much the same page with this. We both feel like Chinese medicine practitioners just didn't get the business education that we needed from the inside and having gone to a school that I feel like is probably one of the best in the nation. I feel like our schooling was rather incredible. There are just some things that the schools need to change in order for us to benefit more from the business classes. Courtney had a really great idea about this. Do you want to talk about that for a minute, Courtney? If you are listening to this podcast and you have any influence on the educational institutions, for alternative healthcare providers in general, please, please make your business classes more robust. Because right now, I have acupuncture clients coming to me with almost zero knowledge of what they need to do to bill correctly. In fact, they've been taught like everything is just time-based. Well, that's not entirely true. It's service-based. So there's just a lot of misconception and, and a lack of education around running a business as an alternative healthcare provider. And even more specifically, working with insurance companies, charting for them, coding for them, you know, all of these things. And so I get a lot of clients that come to me and we're having to educate them about NPI numbers and EIN numbers and how to communicate effectively with their patients about their insurance and how to read their insurance contracts and just the whole thing. And to be fair, even if you were to go for a master's in business in this country, 80% of your course is how to manage people. It's not how to set up a business, how to run a business, how to operate a business. And so the education is lacking across the board for this. Often entrepreneurs are having to learn these things on a steep and expensive learning curve. And I don't think that alternative healthcare providers are outside of that fact. And so I think that if the educational institutions had at the very least a more robust alumni program where a provider has graduated, they're out in the world, 
somebody says, hey, you need an NPI number if you're going to do business with insurance companies, regardless of whether you're contracted with them or not, they should be able to turn back to their school and go to their alumni program and say, what's an NPI number? How do I get that? Where do I go? They should have that information. That should be something that they're helping to provide. I worry when the only education that I'm seeing them get, and I'm speaking in very broad terms, of course, because I don't know every school out there, but oftentimes there's so much focus on how do I get clients? How do I market? What do my materials look like? How do I create an intake form? All of that is great and important, but if you don't have the foundation of how to run and operate your business, there's not going to be a whole lot of substance there for the clients that you do bring in. So it's a really important piece. And I think right now, my opinion is the educational institutions are really failing at providing that to these graduates and giving them some direction. So they're having to pay for that education when they come out of school and they don't have a lot of money coming out of school. I think that a couple things are happening there because from having gone through it, I think that, and we talked about this before, that we have the business classes all through the educational period where they should actually be at the end of it. Because you forget half of it by the time you graduate, you've got files somewhere, you're not interested because you're far more interested in what does this acupuncture point do and the anatomy and the fun stuff. And you're not really in this class paying attention to this class. I feel like it should be all at the end and it should be all about making your website and creating your business plan and talking about the insurance and setting up a mock business. Or yes, we should be in clinic setting up the business or understanding how the intern clinic works. Anyway, all of these things, I think it's just done at the wrong time. I give my school about a 7.5 on the business stuff. So a C plus. You're more generous than I am. <laughs> it was okay. I mean, I don't know yours in particular. I just know that typically when I have people coming from all the different schools, there's a complete lack of understanding that stuff, unless they got that education outside of their school, you know. But in addition to that, also something about how to know how to vet an employer. Do you want to be an employee? Do you not want to run a business? That's okay. There's no shame in that. You know, that not everybody is built to run a business. Um, but it would be nice also to prepare providers for how do you work for somebody else and what does that look like and what should you ask for and what should you look for? I think that there's an awful lot of mm, low-key shame about going and working for somebody else. And there's no shame. You should absolutely do that. If you're not an A-type who is organized and is ready to keep track of stuff and is ready to learn about bookkeeping and all of these things that come along with running a business, then go find a job with somebody else that you really admire, that you really like, that you like the mission of that business. There's nothing wrong with that. And then you just get to show up and heal people. And that's what you went to school for. So I think that it shouldn't be prejudiced in either way. I think it should be able to be out there as in what fits you as a person, you know, what would work best for you as a provider. And maybe go work for somebody for a little while to get the experience and see what it looks like and then make a decision from there. I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with going out of school and just working for somebody else and getting your feet wet in the career before you decide to make a huge, huge decision like owning a business. I think that's great advice. And by the way, that podcast is coming. So if you're if you're binge podcasting and you just hit this episode, spin forward a little bit because that episode is also coming because 
just in my own evolution of practice, I have a job and my own clinic, and I'm learning so much because I'm working in a biomedicine clinic. There's so much with the charting and the just exactly what you said, like how you speak with patients and not only that, but how to negotiate your salary and what hidden factors there are that you didn't consider because you're negotiating your salary or on an hourly or something, what to do when they want more. Because you're if you're in there developing the acupuncture program in a biomedicine clinic, that wasn't really what you signed up for. But if you're the only one and you're the first one, guess what? Guess who gets to write all of that paperwork and all of those descriptions? And if you didn't negotiate that into your salary, which I didn't in the very beginning, you are hours in with no pay. Well, and real world stuff, when you get a quote of how much you're going to make from an employer, that is before taxes. I've met providers who get told, you know, it's this much per month. And then when the check hits and FICA has taken what they're going to take, they're surprised. And part of that is because they didn't have the education knowing that when they're going and getting a W-2 job, that they're going to be taxes taken out of that check. So when you're given a quote of how much money you're making, that's that's gross, baby. I'm glad you brought that up because that just seems like something that you would already know anyway. But. You would think, but there are providers out there I've met personally who are like, what? <laughs> there went 30% of my pay. What happened? Anyway, we could do a whole episode on that. But it is too, like I took this job, neither one of us knew what the insurance companies were going to pay. And my pay was based on a percentage of what we got paid through the insurance companies. I knew this in the beginning. So I saw this on the front end and I was like, whatever, I'll take this risk. He's taking a risk. Let's see what happens. But then you also have to know how to bill insurance properly and how to create treatment plans properly and how to do all of these things so you actually do get paid what you deserve to get paid. And what is your scope of practice in that state? Because there may be things that you are trained to do, you know how to do, you've been educated to do, but because there's no regulation in that state forcing insurance companies to reimburse you for that service, they can get away with not paying you for services that you are well within your education to be able to provide, but because your state doesn't have the right regulations around your scope of practice, or they don't have a non-discriminatory policy for providers, meaning they can't discriminate against one specialty offering a service that is well within their scope of practice or reimbursing that. Hey, this is Shelby from the Jane team. If you're new to the name, Jane is a complete practice management software designed to keep up with your busy acupuncture practice. You can take advantage of powerful features to help you manage your schedule chart faster, sell products, bill insurance, and take payments seamlessly. And with Jane, you'll have access to a supportive community of practitioners and unbeatable support from our friendly team. Come see for yourself at jane.app forward slash acupuncture dash US. It's good to know that state regulations have so much to do with how insurance companies are going to reimburse you for the services you're charging for. So it's really good to understand that aspect of insurance billing in your particular state. So let's step backwards with that for just a second, because not all practitioners, if you're still in school and stuff, are going to quite get this. So each state has a written scope of practice. Well, if they license, let's back up that far. Most states do license for acupuncture. Some of them only license for herbs. But regardless, if that state has licensure, which most of them do, they will have a document that is a scope of practice document. And what that says is 
what you can do within your scope of practice that, well, basically legally, bottom line. This is an interesting topic because who writes those scopes of practice, right? Is that our state organization participating with the politicians or is this some medical doctor who decided to just write our scope of practice? It's really interesting to really kind of become involved if you can, especially with your state organization. So you have say in what is in your scope of practice. And Courtney talked earlier about having a file with all of your business stuff. A copy of your scope of practice should go in that business file because you're going to need to take a look at it on occasion because you're going to forget stuff. And you're going to be like, is that even in my scope, right? This isn't what your malpractice insurance companies will always cover. Often they will say they cover what's in your scope of practice, but this is something that you need to really investigate when you're purchasing your malpractice insurance because some malpractice insurance companies will not cover all of your scope. Okay, that was sort of an aside. I'm going to back up and just kind of repeat what Courtney just said. So let me repeat this back to you, make sure I got it right, Courtney. Some insurance companies will not pay for, even if it states it's in your scope of practice, some insurance companies will just choose not to pay. So what they're doing is, let me give Oregon as an example. Oregon has a non-discrimination policy against providers. That policy basically states that if I am, you know, I was a massage therapist for 14 years. My scope of practice is quite limited, was quite limited, but it did include, and I'm going to start getting into technical things here, a massage therapy, which is a 97124, that's a CPT code, or a 97140, which is manual therapy. Now, manual therapy is technically a physical therapy service, but it's within my scope of practice to perform that. Now, because I'm in Oregon, if I am working with an insurance company whose home base is also in Oregon, meaning they have to abide by Oregon state regulations, they cannot say that I can't provide a 97140 because it's within my scope of practice. So if I bill a 97140, if that patient has that benefit, they are obligated to reimburse me the same way that they would be obligated to reimburse an acupuncturist with the same scope of practice or a chiropractor with the same scope of practice. But if there is not an anti-discriminatory policy in place, then an insurance company could say, look, we cover massage therapy, but only when rendered by a chiropractor. So they can discriminate against certain specialties. And that's their way of kind of limiting how often they're paying for that service by saying, well, it's only going to be done by a chiropractor. And certainly a massage therapist could work under a chiropractor's license and perform that treatment. But I don't know any chiropractors who are spending an hour doing a massage for a patient after how much they've paid for schooling. They want to do their thing. I've had positive feedback on that policy and negative feedback because, of course, I think that a lot of specialists, acupuncturists, physical therapists, so on and so forth, they're a bit protective of what they can do because they went to school for so long to do it. And so they want to perform that. And maybe there's the thought of, you know, I really don't want a physical therapist who can do dry needling to be doing acupuncture for patients when I went to school to do this. But the other side of the coin is when a patient, let's say that they are going to see an acupuncturist and they could use soft tissue therapy in addition to the needles that they're getting from the acupuncturist. Wouldn't it be nice and wouldn't it be fair for the acupuncturist to be able to perform that service and be reimbursed by the insurance company instead of limited so that that patient doesn't have to go see a massage therapist, go see an acupuncturist, go see this and that. 
they would be able to go with continuity of care to see the therapist that they want to see, the practitioner they want to see, and get the services that are well within the scope of practice of that provider to serve. So that's kind of another piece to this is I get why some therapists want to restrict services and say, I want to be the only one to do this. But the other side of the coin is if you're trained, if you're able to provide that service and it's within your scope of practice, I think that you should be able to be reimbursed for it. Yes. That was a lot. I like the perspective of outside of the practice of billers. And I feel like um, a bunch of doors just sort of slammed in the minds of acupuncturists because other practitioners are definitely after our codes, specifically PTs are just so incredible at picking up other modalities. And that is because they have such great state support and really good programming. And also, if you support the state, then you have money for lobbyists. The PTs just really have a really, really great organization. And with that, means they have a lot of money so that they can lobby for things. Now, we're not excited about them using any of our acupuncture codes, but they're smart enough to just recode it with a different word and a different number and do it anyway and call it dry needling. So no, I I think a lot of us are not excited about that. But conversely, do we use a 97140 all the damn time? And conversely, do you really want to be just restricted to acupuncture codes? Because you are not going to make money in this industry if you do. Like if you just are just doing acupuncture and you're not able to perform even office visit codes, insurance companies in states that are able to restrict the type of services that are provided by specialties that are within their scope of practice to provide that service, oftentimes There are states out there that will not reimburse acupuncturists for office visit codes. That means if you have a new patient and you have done an evaluation with a full medical history and you've checked the vitals and you've checked the body systems and you've gone through 30 minutes with that patient before you're treating them with acupuncture, you will not get reimbursed for that office visit code if you have or if you're working in a state that practices a discriminatory policy against providers. So, yeah, of course, there's a downside and an upside, you know. And I think that the answer there is educating the public. If I want acupuncture, I'm going to go see an acupuncturist. I know that I could see a physical therapist and they could do a little thing here or there, but that's not what they went to school for. And I know that. So I'm going to go see an acupuncturist for those services. I think that acupuncturist should be able to do an office visit with me and charge and reimbursed for that office visit instead of just their acupuncture codes, which are poorly paid codes in most states. Yes. And I can speak to that and tell you 100% that if I were not able to bill E&M codes, which are evaluation codes and re-evaluation codes, that this job that I took would not be worth it because it's enough to boost my pay over a six-visit treatment plan to something that is a fair wage. Okay, let me back up for a second because a lot of practitioners are not going to know what these codes are. A CPT code, which she talked about earlier, is a treatment code. So whenever you perform a treatment, The CPT codes are the codes that you use as your needling, it's your manual therapy, it's your e-stim, etc. And then an E&M code is an evaluation code. It's often when your first evaluation, you might do like a 30-minute eval, which is a 99203, and then you might do one set of needles, which is a 97810-97811. And then you also need an assessment code oftentimes in order to bill insurance too. So you need what the diagnosis is, the diagnosis code, which I always, if I can best hijack from a previous medical doctor who has prescribed or who has actually diagnosed somebody with a Western medical condition. I take that code first beyond anything that I ever might diagnose. 
when you have the referral? I don't get referrals, but I literally work in a biomedical clinic so I can pop over and see what diagnosis codes that the medical doctors have diagnosed. But you can also ask people sometimes, like, have you been diagnosed with neuropathy? Because I'm not so sure as an acupuncturist, you cannot diagnose neuropathy, right? And that's a good point because if you have a medical provider, an MD or a DO providing you with a diagnosis code in a referral, it's totally fine to be using that diagnosis code as long as you are putting the referring provider onto the claim so that you see where that diagnosis came from. Because if it is a diagnosis that you are unable to provide, if you're unable to diagnose that particular issue, let's say it's an internal medicine issue and you are unable to provide that diagnosis as an acupuncturist, then you would need to reference the referral where you got that diagnosis code from. That was really good information. Anyway, diagnosis codes and then re-evaluation codes as well. E&M, it stands for Evaluation and Management, and that covers the 99 series code. So that's your evaluation for a new patient and your reevaluation of an existing patient. So let's talk about the discriminatory policy. How is it that they can say that? Is it because it doesn't state in our scope of practice that we can do an initial evaluation? Is that what it needs to say? Is that what you're saying? So there's two aspects. You could have in your state, you could have a scope of practice that includes evaluation and management codes. The issue comes into play if you don't have the non-discrimination policy for providers also in that state, insurance companies can interpret the language around your scope of practice and still limit the types of practice. So even if your scope of practice in that state does include evaluation and management, does include physical therapy, if there's not something specifically limiting the insurance companies or making them so that they can't discriminate against certain specialties, they will always try to limit the services in whatever way they can, whatever legal loophole they can find to deny and delay. Those are big mottos for insurance companies. If a practitioner wanted to look to see if their state had an anti-discrimination policy, where would they look? So you'd go to your state website. Usually Secretary of State is a good place to start because Secretary of State is usually who hosts small business. That's who you usually have to go to to get your business name and your bin and all the things. They usually can point you in the right direction for the regulations that are present in that state. I would also highly recommend you had mentioned earlier, you know, perhaps getting involved with state level things that would affect your career, affect your field. I would say that it's a good idea to check in with the association or the group that's been formed, because usually they have a, a lobbyist or they know of a lobbyist, and usually they're on top of these types of regulations. They are aware of what affects the field. That's a really good way of starting, is understanding how does your state regulate your career, your field, when it comes to operating in that state with patients and operating in that state with other businesses and insurance companies. Because this can fall apart in a minute, right? It's one thing that you can feel very run over in this. And so when you have the connection with the association, your peers, a support group, it's really important to feel like you coming together, you know, to work on this together, because I think that it can really give providers a sense of loneliness when they are a business. And it feel, it's very lonely as a business owner. You know, I, I've been a business owner for 20 years and it can get very isolating. So the more that you engage with support networks, the more you engage with associations that are working with your state to improve the access to your field, to help make sure that you are are being treated fairly as a provider, I think that those types of things really 
give you back energy in this field. Whereas oftentimes you can become depleted, you know, battling these things that feel so much larger than yourself. So that's why I say I encourage providers to find their network. And even if it's just you're on the outskirts and you're just listening to what's happening, it's good to know. It's good to be informed. Also, too, I was thinking, you know, if the insurance companies suddenly decide they're not paying on ENM codes, your whole practice can suffer. That's such a huge percentage. That's kind of where I was going with that. Do you feel like we covered that topic pretty thoroughly? Yeah, I mean, there's always so much more to get into. But yes, I think we've at least given you something to think about, right? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you want to talk about particularly? Have we covered everything? You know, I would say that the only other topic that I hear often from clients is the billing insurance specifically. They often come out of school with an understanding that they should bill based on time and insurance is based on services provided. So that's often a misconception for acupuncturists coming out of school. Another thing that I think new practitioners often find really confusing, myself included, is the 97810, our acupuncture codes are based on face-to-face time and the time that we put the needles in. And those things need to be documented in our notes. But tell me a little bit about how you see us being a little overly confused about this. And can you clarify some things for us? Absolutely. So oftentimes acupuncturists are coming out of school with the understanding that the core of their billing is time-based. And I think a good reason for that is the 97810, the 97811 are timed codes. You know, you have to perform them for 8 to 15 minutes and you have to reach that 15-minute mark before the second unit starts, things like that. So there's an understanding coming out of school that it's time-based. And I think that that can really throw people off because I've had a lot of clients say, well, I need to make at least this much money. So what codes do I use to equal that amount of money? And that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I understand why somebody would tackle it that way. But the thing is, insurance reimburses you based on the services you render. So it's not that you're going into it saying, what codes do I throw in there that equal the amount of time or the amount of money that I am seeking it is purely based on what are you doing with that patient? You know, are you doing an evaluation and management? Are you doing a systems check, a vitals, all the things? You look at the requirements for that ENM code and then you match those requirements. So it's service based and you have to look at the requirements of the code to be able to render it correctly. So when I have somebody say, well, I treat people for an hour and 15 minutes and I need to get reimbursed for that time, I hear that, I understand that, but the thinking needs to shift to what am I actually doing with this patient and am I being reimbursed for all of the services? And if I'm not being reimbursed by insurance companies for this service, am I able to then charge the patient out of pocket for that service? Let's say that you are in a state that says, I'm sorry, you can't perform PT codes, so you can't perform manual therapy. That doesn't mean that you can't perform it. You are well within your scope of practice to provide that service. You just won't get reimbursed by insurance for it. So that's an opportunity for you to say, okay, patient A, I think that you would really benefit from manual therapy. However, your insurance is not going to cover that. I'm going to offer that to you to pay that out of pocket. There's other ways, but I would say that the biggest misconception that I see around billing insurance for acupuncturists is they are coming out of school solely based on time. You know, I want, you know, $100 for an hour. How do I get $100 for the hour? Well, let's talk about what you're actually doing. 
what kind of services are you providing in that hour? And I think that that's often what does discourage providers because they're thinking, okay, well, I did one unit of uh, 97810 and two units of 97811. Well, those are unfortunately, low reimbursed codes. And so even if you did spend an hour doing that, the service is not going to provide you what you want to make in that time. So it takes relearning around what are the CPT codes within your scope of practice in your state that you are able to bill to insurance and be reimbursed. And then of course, the second level is does that patient have those benefits? Because it's not just will insurance pay for it, but does that patient have the benefits to be able to have those paid? And oftentimes you're competing in a way too, because I know that for a lot of my people, they can completely use up all of their physical therapy benefits. And so if you do a 97140, that's already been exhausted and they'll have to pay out of pocket or you'll have to write it off. Yeah, it is good to understand what kind of other therapies they may be getting for the condition that they're being treated for. And then too, one of the companies combines chiropractic with acupuncture. You only get 20 visits. So if they see their chiropractor 18, they're going to be paying out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. This was so much information. And I really appreciate you taking the time to really be very thorough with your explanations and show up and talk to us about this today. The beauty of a podcast is that they can rewind stuff and go over it over and over again if they need to. So any words of wisdom you would like to impart on the newbies before we let you go? Words of wisdom. I would just say, even though you just came out of school and you're probably ready to just jump in and do, it is a really smart idea to educate further on the real world, the bringing your specialty into the real world. And that can happen on a lot of levels. That can happen from talking to a mentor that's been in the field for a while. That can be getting a job where they can kind of help guide you and show you the pitfalls of the career and how to get around them and how to make your career successful. Get involved with your alumni program and put pressure on them to be able to provide the kind of information that would be most valuable to you outside of school and join support groups. You know, there's tons of support groups for specialties on Facebook and, and other places and be able to talk to your peers, you know, create a network for yourself. Because like I said earlier, especially if you do come out of school and you decide that you do want to be a business owner, being a business owner can become very lonely and isolating. And the more people that you have that understand what you're going through and what you're facing and can help you along the way, that learning curve is going to be less steep and it's going to be less expensive and you're going to feel supported and like you know what's coming instead of constantly being surprised by the bureaucracy that is owning a business in the U.S. So and be gentle with yourselves. Real quick before we go, I just want to say a word of gratitude for Jane, Electronic Health Records Company. What is your title with Jane? I'm an ambassador and they sponsor my podcast, basically. And I really appreciate them very much because they keep the wheels on the bus here at the AccuSprout podcast, for sure. So I just want to give a special thanks to Jane for sponsoring the podcast and also for giving me an avenue to talk to Courtney because all of her... I think she mentioned earlier, everything that she does is with the Jane interface, the electronic health records. Our claims and billing, we work exclusively with clients who use Jane app software. And I'm an advisor, I would say, to Jane. I receive no monetary reimbursement. I'm just kind of there helping them to make their platform better. 
And just recently, actually, they launched Jane US Billing Support Group on Facebook, and I'm one of the group experts that's kind of helping people work through insurance issues that come up and workflow issues when it is in regards to billing and insurance. Really enjoy helping the community just be educated. Awesome. Thank you so much, Courtney. You guys, you can find her at PD Expert Medical Billing, and I'm sure that we will chat again in the future. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Stacey. Pleasure to be here. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.